Welcome to Being Human. Delighted to say this week's guest is Sidney Finkelstein. He's the Professor of Leadership at Dartmouth College and the host of the podcast, The Sidcast. Uh, Sydney, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be on with you, Richard. Right. So the way I, I connected to you was uh, through a previous guest, guest who, who's written the book Super Engaged about the work that she's done here in the UK with her marketing agency. That book has been shortlisted for Business Book of the Year here. And she, she references you a couple of times in the book. So I've got, I've got to read more about this guy. I, I found your book, uh, Super Bosses, loved it. Couldn't wait to get you on the show. Um, so yeah, I'd love to take a dive into what we mean by super boss and, and what you've learned in the course of, of writing that book today. Absolutely. Great. And I wondered if we might start with the, the dedication, the first sentence of the book, uh, when you described that the first super, super boss you ever knew was, uh, I presume it's your, your mother, Anna Finkelstein. Is that right? That is correct. It was my mom, and uh, she certainly was a super boss and did many of the things that I uh, eventually found out uh, senior executives do when, uh, when they become great leaders. Right. And um, so what are some of the things that distinguishes a super boss from a another boss? So a super boss is uh, a leader that sees potential in other people, often before they see it themselves. Superboss is uh, actually a, it's a leader that has a track record of generating and regenerating talent on a continuous basis. Uh, and maybe in some, it's uh, it's a leader that actually is in the business of creating other leaders, and as a result, ends up with some of the best results, best success in whatever their sector or industry or uh, or organization happens to be. Right, and you break down three types of super bosses, right? The the, the iconoclast, the nurturer, and the the glorious bastard. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, so it's very interesting because um, there are three different types based on um, almost personality and motivation. It turns out they do more or less the same things uh, along the way, but their uh, their motivation is is different. So the first type is a, a nurturer, which is maybe the type most people uh, think of. A nurture someone who helps other people really get better, cares about other people. The motivation is that you want to help people on your team be more successful. And as a result, you're a great mentor, really a super mentor to them. So that's the first type. The second um, are more creative people. I call them uh, iconoclasts. These are people that uh, help other people get better and enhance other people's skills and capabilities uh, by, by, by their own presence as a creative artist, uh, as, a, as a leader. And what they do is they end up attracting a lot of other people who want to be around them, want to, want to be in their orbit, want to be in their circle. And the reason that these iconoclast super bosses actually uh, do what they do is that they know that they, they themselves will get better by being immersed in a milieu of talent. And then finally, the third type is maybe the most interesting in a way. It's, these, are the, these are really tough leaders, tough bosses. And I call them glorious bastards, actually. Um, and they're... Uh, they're very, very challenging. They're very, their motivation is they care about winning above all else. And what ins the insight that they have that's very important is that they know that to win, they need to surround themselves 
with fantastic talent, with the world's best talent. They understand that they can't do, do it themselves. So that while they might not care specifically in any emotional level with people that work for them, they, they, they find it in their interest to do everything they can to accelerate their careers, to enhance their capabilities. And as a result, if you can stand it, if you can handle it, you discover that those tops, that those types of bosses are actually quite glorious for your career because you, you move on very often to tremendous uh, success in doing all sorts of things. So three different types, different personalities, different motivational styles, but um, kind of surprising and interesting. They end up doing a lot of the same things. Mm. And really, you know, the, the the one that obviously stands out is the, is the glorious bastard. And, and how do we know whether we're dealing with a bastard or a glorious bastard? Because bastards are getting a lot of heat, right? Especially the, even, even in the Sunday Times here, I'm here in the UK, there's a big article about, you know, the, the problem with, with, with bad bosses and, and how detrimental they can be in, in companies and so on and how we should be um, embracing more fem, feminine value sets in the, in the workplace. So, so how do we distinguish just, you know, an arsehole from somebody who's, who can be great for people's careers? Yeah. So it's interesting. It's not just a masculine and feminine type of thing because there are, um, plenty of women that are also glorious bastards, uh, just as there are plenty of, plenty of men. Uh, but what's really, um, uh, what's really different is, uh, that they, they help you get better. At the end of the day, while they're, they're not easy to work for, if you can handle it, they teach you so much. They give you so many amazing opportunities that you can't help but get better. In fact, one thing that people should think about is, you know, do you really want a nice boss? And, and I always say, just because you have a nice boss doesn't mean you have a good boss at all. Somebody who's nice uh, doesn't necessarily push you to the next level, doesn't challenge you, doesn't have very, very high expectations on what you need to do to be successful. And anyone who has... Um, has had a, an exciting career that they moved up and they've been, they've taken on bigger and bigger challenges and responsibilities along the way. They've had people that have pushed them. And that's what a glorious bastard does. They, they care, they care a lot, uh, but they're not going to sugarcoat it. Right. And uh, there's a quote in the book. I love, uh, uh, chapter six, when you talk about hands on delegators and doing a time, uh, doing a year under Larry Ellison counted as a, in dog years, right? You could one year with him was like seven somewhere else. Or yeah, that's right. It's uh, talk about fast acceleration of a career. Yeah, and okay. So, so what I suppose let's just dwell in this for a minute because I, I do think it's one of the most interesting parts of the book. How, how if I'm if I'm in a scenario and I know I've got a really challenging boss, um, are there signs? That, that tell me whether it's just I can't handle this person, but otherwise they would be great for my career, or they are, are they genuinely a sort of a destructive narcissist who, are, who I should genuinely steer clear of? How do I sort of understand what frame I'm in? Well, I think there's a couple of things to think about. First of all, um, the these these glorious bastards are actually not destructive at all. They might be narcissists, but they're not destructive. Uh, they, uh, they care so much about, uh, fulfilling their vision, their goals, that they will go far out of their way to help you as a subordinate, as a team member, get better. And that's not destructive at all. That's actually incredibly uh, con- constructive. It's just that they're gonna, they're gonna push you. They're gonna, they're gonna challenge you. And you have to, um, and you have to be, uh, you have to be ready for, uh, you have to be ready for that. And the second thing is, the truth is, it's not for everybody. 
not everyone is going to be comfortable. You know, there's a fit thing. Some people work better with certain types of bosses and other people uh, work better with maybe a different type. And uh, so for some people, they just don't want to kind of pay their dues in that way. They'd like to have kind of an easier pathway to be successful. The truth is that easier pathways to success tend not to lead to success. Um, there's not a lot of people, I think, that have been successful that haven't really paid their dues in all sorts of different ways. And super and, and glorious uh, bastards will, will, will expect that. But um, it's not for everyone. Uh, and I, I understand that. Um, and it might be that, you know, I would even say it should be like uh, everyone should have a dose of, of glorious bastard leadership in their, in their careers. Uh, it doesn't mean that um, um, you want to be there for 20 years. But even a short period of time, you know, in the quote, years, one years, worth seven years, pretty good. And um, uh, most great leaders can be very, very uh, tough on the people around them because they expect excellence. And anything short of excellence is unacceptable. I think a lot of people will benefit quite a bit by being in an environment like that. Right. And it really, it definitely challenges a certain strand of orthodoxy right now that to be a, a great leader, you need to have empathy and emotional intelligence and be able to tune into where others are at. And I think you're saying something quite different here that just a, a pure dedication to winning in itself has a, has a value for people around them. Well, a dedication to, to winning with colleagues and partners on your team, as opposed to a dedication to winning at all costs. Uh, where people on your team are to be blamed for anything that goes wrong or are not really are told what to do and they don't do exactly what, what you, what, what you tell them to do, then you get rid of them. Glorious bastards are not going to do that. They're going to expect you on your team, uh, you as a team member to actually come up with ideas. In fact, even Larry Ellison, as tough as he was, he was never happier than when he had somebody on his team that could push back against him and, and teach him something he didn't know. Now you had to be able to defend your, defend your point of view. But that's, that's to be expected. Uh, and you should expect to be challenged from your boss as opposed to people just nodding their heads. You know, a quest for, a quest for excellence is, is definitely not a bad, a bad thing. Having said all that, um, the glorious bastards as a percent of the, of all of the super bosses, certainly the smallest of the three categories. It's not that, uh, they're that many. Uh, but there are some, and I think it's important nowadays, especially to recognize that there are different pathways to, uh, to becoming a highly effective leader, even something um, a little bit unusual. Right. And, and that's another point you make in the book that, you know, the, 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 uh, the super bosses, they don't, they don't honor best practices. They're, they're creating a leadership style of their own and they're, they're putting it together based on, on their talents. Um, and they're not, um, not not trying to i mean it's kind of obvious to say i suppose but they're not they're try, not trying to create something according to other people's playbooks how many people actually do do exactly that how many people live their lives on the base of what other people tell them to do a lot of people do that and uh, i don't think you're going to achieve something really unique and special if you keep listening to what everybody else tells you this is actually a really big uh, issue in uh, many different ways i'll just give you one as a slight tangent if i can um uh, about women in uh, in management jobs, um, uh, there are many examples where women uh, are pushed in a particular direction, and they think they've got to do what they're being told to do because they're, the, the odds are stacked against them anyways because of, of discrimination, salary change, uh, differences in salary, and lots of other things. Uh, and, but you never want to you never want to um, rely on what other people have told you to do 
uh, at the end of the day. Yes, take it in as feedback. You have to be open to feedback, especially negative feedback. But at the end of the day, you should be able to decide what it is you want to do. For for young people listening, that also that also applies to your your their own careers. Uh, you have to uh, you have to go with what you think is right, but not just coming out of the you know out of the sky and 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 and, and just coming up with some crazy idea. Listen to people, get that feedback, thank people for that feedback, but d- don't follow a life and a business career and a set of decisions that uh, that other people have told you are the right ones to do. You got to stand up for yourself and do it yourself. It's much more fun to do it that way, also. Right. And have you got examples from your own career where you sort of ignored a best practice? And, 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 well, I'm um, very, uh, I'm very anti best practice, anyways, uh, because what, what I mean, what what's the best you can possibly do if you follow best practice? You'll be playing catch up to everybody else who's already done something. And by the time you figure out the best practice, they're on to the next thing. So it's a losing, it's a losing formula. It's a, it's, it's a good formula for mediocrity if that's what you want. Um, and, you know, in, in academia, which is where I spend most of my time along with, you know, consulting and coaching, but a lot, a lot of research that I've done, one of the, one of the things that a lot of people are taught is, you know, find a, find a gap in the literature, find something, that somebody hasn't really talked about that's maybe uh, a slight improvement over over what they've done before. And that leads you to incremental thinking. And that's opposite to, to a super boss mentality. Super bosses are not interested in moving forward inch by inch or, or um, you know, centimeter by centimeter. Uh, they want to they change the, the conversation. They want to change the game. They want to have a big impact. And um, Yes, there's going to be a higher failure rate by doing that, by definition. That's always true when you try to be innovative. But number one, it's way more fun. And number two, when you actually hit it, uh, there's a lot of people that are going to, that are going to want to uh, learn from you. And search an academic or uh, executive um, or, or a leader for that matter. Right. And uh, well, that challenges what you say in the book about being uncompromisingly open and this tolerance mm-hmm. for failure uh, yeah. as being such an important part of this picture, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good example of what you're referencing, uncompromisingly open, of a lot of the counterintuitive things that, um, that I learned from these super boss leaders. Um, because, you know, if you're uncompromising, it doesn't sound like you can be very open. Uh, but yet that's what they, that's what they are. And, and what, uh, what I learned, what I saw from, from what they did. And, um, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but I interviewed over 250 senior executives, many of them CEOs, many of them proteges of, uh, super boss leaders to really try to understand, uh, all, all this entire thing that was going on and how to help, you know, people become more effective. Uh, the uncompromising part refers to your vision, your, fundamental goal. What is it you want to accomplish? So for example, uh, George Lucas, uh, legendary uh, film uh, filmmaker from Star Wars, uh, a number of years ago, uh, before Star Wars, he had a vision about a movie that he wanted to make. And it was a classic movie about a father and a son, a story that's been told, that had been told before, but had never been told in the way that he was thinking about it. And so if you were going to work for George Lucas and you didn't buy into that vision of that that story that he wanted to tell, you would not succeed. You would not survive. He wouldn't give you the time of day. You had to buy into that vision, that fundamental vision. But as long as you did, he wanted every idea you had. He didn't think that he had a monopoly on trying to figure out how to solve that problem or how to fulfill that vision. He really thought that he would benefit by having a lot of other people contribute uh, and be involved. And the net result is that um, uh, George Lucas directly 
and indirectly created many uh, startup companies, uh, all in digital uh, design, digital technology, graphic arts. Pixar is a very, very famous one. Industrial Light and Magic is another one. And, and he created them with other people who then went about trying to figure out how to, how to make a movie that, of course, it eventually became Star Wars, so we know what it looked like, but no one knew what it looked like. He had, he, Lucas had a vision in his head, and these people had to work with him to fulfill that vision. But he didn't know how he was going to execute on that vision. And he wanted other people's ideas. He didn't impose his views on them. And that's where the open part comes in, which, if you think about it, is a combination that a lot of millennials would love to, love to have because you get a seat at the table. Your boss doesn't tell you you have to do it this way. Your boss says, here's, here's, here's our point. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's why we exist. Now help me figure it out together. And that's very powerful. That's a very compelling message that, uh, first of all, everybody likes that message, but especially millennials who want to have a big impact. Right. And they want to have, we talk about it in the book, you know, they, they, they want to have passion for their work. They want to have a sense yeah. of purpose, a sense of meaning. And mm-hmm. yeah, I can see how that openness um, really serves that because, because, but there's something about the quality of that openness, isn't there? Because you could be in a corporation where, yeah, the corporation might be open about their their vision or their objectives, or or they've got posters of their values in the elevators. But mm-hmm. you're saying something else here, aren't you? It's about it's about the sort of depth of authenticity of what what the leaders are sharing. Is it something mm-hmm. like that? It 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 is. It's not uh, you know all the stuff that's on the wall is fine. You can do that all you like. Uh, I, I don't remember hardly ever seeing that in, in when you go visit the offices of some of these super boss leaders. Uh, these are people that uh, really uh, walk the talk. Uh, they don't just talk about it. They do it. Uh, they live it. They breathe it. It doesn't take long for you to realize that they genuinely believe in what they believe in. You know, Ralph Lauren, another one of the super bosses, um, um, would just take long walks, especially earlier in his career, long walks with people on his team to talk about his vision, to talk about what he was trying to accomplish, and to try to get these these talented people on his team to to uh, become believers in in that concept, in that idea, and to help him accomplish that. And so they're they're constantly talking about this. They're doing it. These are people that that do that do this. Uh, and you know, use the word authentic. They definitely are authentic. They're very high integrity in the sense that they believe in what they believe in. They're going to tell you what it is and they're going to, they're going to back it up. And I think today, especially going back to millennials, one of the biggest concerns um, and breakdowns I see in companies that are trying to bring in more millennials and retain those millennials. And I've heard it from many of my own students as well is that the leader of the company might say all sorts of things, but when you get there, you discover it's actually not that way. Um, I'm going to give you one very specific of mine, um, consumer packaged goods company that talked uh, endlessly about sustainability and uh, environmental concerns, and um, uh, and 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 you know they talked about that a lot. And she got there, and she worked. She was there for a couple of years, and there was a product they were sourcing from the rainforest that uh, had uh, had that did cause some ecological damage. And she came up with an alternative, um, um, an alternative way to resource uh, that uh, that particular ingredient, and um, it would just cost slightly more—not a lot more, but slightly more. And they essentially laughed her out of the room when she presented it. And they 
They were, you know, they, they say they would say a lot of things about sustainability, but when push comes to shove, if it's going to cost a marginal amount more, it's not a good idea. And she ended up leaving that, that company. Here's a super talented person that um, uh, discovered and maybe, you know, people that are older are not so surprised because you, 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 you've seen it before, but millennials are pretty idealistic, really kind of interesting. And if they're not, if people are, you know, if, if, if a company or a leader says one thing and does the other, they have very, very little patience for it. And the truth is super boss leaders, even the glorious bastards, they're very direct and very clear. They tell you what they're thinking. And that, that I think that's appreciated. Right. And that, yeah, no, and I can see that. And it's, and it's, it's about the vision and it's also about, uh, about their views on whether something works, whether it doesn't work, whether something's failed, whether it hasn't failed, they have, and that includes themselves. So this openness seems to be, to pervade like the whole operation in a sense. Yeah, I think that's right. They, uh, um, they, they don't like to fool themselves. You know, a lot of people fool themselves believing all sorts of things. They are intellectually honest, if you want to use that term. They, uh, you know, they, they, they look at reality um, the way that it is and are unafraid of, in fact, welcome negative feedback because that helps them, that helps them get better. And they're very good at giving feedback. And this is true as well for the nurturers that are a little bit more they're very, very supportive. Uh, being supportive of people on your team doesn't mean not telling them when they screw up. In fact, you could imagine it would be quite the opposite. If somebody doesn't do, do a good job, are you really nurturing them by not providing the feedback they need to get better? And, and um, uh, boss leaders are very, um, very direct in that respect. Uh, respectful, certainly the nurturers in particular, but, uh, but direct. Right. And the story I love in the book is uh, the, the sound engineer working with George Lucas on R2-D2. Mm-hmm. George Lucas said, you know, I want organic sounding, you know, electronic sounds. And and the sound engineer keeps, keeps coming up with it. And George Lucas is just very straight, right? No, that's not it. No, that's not it. No, that's not it. But, it, but he didn't, he allowed him to keep experimenting according mm-hmm. to a brief. Um, that's right. And, and so he's giving that feedback. He's not pretending it's the right answer when it's not the right answer. But he also knows that this, this sound engineer, and that sound engineer is Ben Burt, who's an Academy Award winner, an Oscar winner, um, uh, with tremendous track record. He knew that that's the guy that would figure it out way before he'd figure it out himself. So he just had to give him a little bit of direction and, and, and feedback as appropriate and then leave, leave him be to figure it out. Right. Um, the other, the other point I really that hooked me in the book was this idea that we shape the team around the talents of the individuals. And I, and a lot of the, the work that I've done is in the agile software engineering space. And in that space, we have a lot of sort of templates for how you might organize your team. And we have quite specific um, descriptions of roles. And it's all about, you know, having the right roles. And what was interesting to me was you're, you're sort of throwing that out and saying, no, so build, super bosses build the team around the talents. Can you talk a bit more about that? So they, um, they certainly are open to all sorts of different talent and they'll go out of the way to find people uh, that are great, uh, even if they don't exactly have a, a job for them at any point in time. And it sounds like kind of, kind of odd to hire people, you know, without a job description and without even a job sometimes and just create something. But as I've talked about this idea, uh, really with thousands of, of people all, all over the world, I usually ask after I say some, some of these kind of crazy ideas, I say, okay, anyone ever do anything like that? And you get not a lot of hands, but you're going to get good 10 or 15% of the audience raising their hands saying, yeah, I hire people like that. And I, and I help uh, adjust my team based on the talent that I have. 
You see this in uh, among the best sports coaches in the world. I profile one in particular from American football, the National Football League, Bill Walsh, who, uh, who was a um, head coach for the San Francisco 49ers uh, and one of the most successful head coaches ever. And uh, in American football, and maybe this is true in a lot of other sports as well, you can't always get... Um, uh, you can't always get the same, the, all the best players. Of course, you cannot. You don't. You have salary caps, and you have uh, um, inability to draft all those players, or buy them, or convince them to come over, or what have you. Uh, and uh, so, you have a certain talent pool that you have to figure out what's the best way to excel with that talent pool. And that's what he did. And more recently, certainly in America, uh, in American football, you have the New England Patriots um, head coach Bill Belichick. Uh, they've just won the Super Bowl again. The most successful head coach. Um, since Bill Walsh, really, and, um, and maybe even surpassing him in some ways. And every year they come up, every game, they come up with a different game plan based on the talent that they have and what they're, what they're facing. So uh, that, there, there, there is a real agility to that, but the agility is at such a um, um, basic level uh, where you're making changes, you're making adjustments as you're going along based on what, what you need. And uh, so this, uh, it's, it's unusual, I think, uh, for bosses, for leaders to do that. But it's one of those things that I think has paid off quite a bit for these super boss leaders. Yeah, right. It makes a lot of sense. And have you, cause have you come across people who've managed to make a transition just based on understanding some of these principles from you know, boss to super boss? Or is it, are, are, are these just you know, individuals born great? They just have some... Mm-hmm burning passion or some interest in it. And it's, it's pretty difficult for, for, right. for an ordinary Joe to emulate them. Yeah. So in fact, it turns out that everything that I talk about in the book and that we've been talking about so far uh, is completely teachable and meaning learnable. Uh, the way I look at it is, yeah, you know, all of us are born with certain genetic makeup that gives us advantages or disadvantages. Some people are born with the ability to be faster or stronger uh, some people are born with uh, with a creative gene, you know, uh, and some people may be more natural leaders than others. But that doesn't mean that everyone else is kind of consigned to ineffectiveness. Uh, I don't I don't buy that. Of course, I'm a teacher. It would be hard to be a teacher if you really believe that. Uh, I think anyone can get better at anything. Um, and that, this is very true for the super boss uh, uh, playbook, as I describe it, uh, because it's all teachable, because it's all learnable. And because uh, and I spent a lot of time with companies and HR leaders and learning and development leaders, uh, um, helping them and keep in mind is um, while many of the people we've been talking about and that I profile in the book are pretty famous, you know, George Lucas and Ralph Lauren and you know, the best football coaches and people in different industries. Uh, the truth is that there are super bosses up and down every organization. Um, big enough companies will have many of them. The problem is that people don't even know who they are because most companies are not designed, most HR groups are not designed to try to identify literally these superstar talents that are in various places in the company. The people in their circle will know, people that work for them will know who they are, but they're not really being identified and celebrated and even used as internal internal coaches or internal teachers to help other people. So there's a lot of, I call it low-hanging fruit, really, uh, in, in organizations where without a ton of effort, you can identify some of the people that already are doing some of these super boss uh, practices, and you can teach uh, many other people how to up their game 
to become more super boss uh, like. That doesn't mean they're going to be, you know, a Larry Ellison, but it does mean that they could become much more successful in their in their jobs. And the only thing that keeps that keeps this from happening is really, um, I think, the focus in in uh, HR uh, and and learning and development groups that uh, that where they there's there's an over tendency, I think, to use standard practice. Go back to best practice again. Mm. Everybody talks about you know, in HR and learning development, the same types of things around, um, say, uh, um, executive development programs or uh, identify your high potentials, very, very common idea, and put them through some type of development program. The thing about super boss leaders is that they create high potentials, which I think is a lot better than just trying to find the few you have and helping them get better. Imagine that you can, you, you can be almost exponential in your talent development. Uh, um, success rate within a company by applying these types of ideas. So kind of a long answer to the question that says there's boss like if they really wanted to. Right. But what you're touching on there in terms of doing this in large corporations really resonates because I think there is this sense that uh, we want to, I hear it all the time with client you know, standard practices. There's that we want to be consistent in our approach for X, right? And, and what I think part of the message here is actually super, super bosses are highly idiosyncratic, right? They're idiosyncratic in the way that they express themselves and their leadership, but they're also idiosyncratic in the way that they put teams together based on the talents that they have. So that there's a, so then begs the question, okay, well, what's the role for uh, you know, HR within an organization? So idiosyncratic is, is is right, you know, in the sense that they do things that are different than your typical uh, manager or, or typical leader, which is what makes it so important to, to 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 know about this. It's different than what is standard practice. But as I as I mentioned earlier, uh, what they do that uh, is different than the norm is actually completely you can completely capture it. In fact, I've done it in my book, Super Bosses, and um, there's a follow up book that has all kinds of workshop exercises called the Super Boss Playbook that uh, just recently came out as well. And that combination can help any company become more, uh, more effective at trying to, uh, at trying to do this. So um, the tools are, the tools are there. I think uh, the theory is there, the concept. Is right. Right. Um, the other thing that I thought uh, that the, I thought it was very interesting for people who listen to this podcast with a, with a change background or change, interested in change leadership is you reference Cotter and, uh, how in these type in an organization led by a super boss, you don't, you don't, but of course he talks about his, his, his steps, for, steps for change. And it includes building a coalition of the willing and, and having this sense of a burning platform. Um, but, but the idea of the super boss, they, they create, they, they themselves are built for change. They're creating organizations that are, are constantly changing so that the whole idea of a sort of change management methodology as being a requirement kind of goes, goes out the window. I thought, I thought that was very interesting. It's, uh, it, it's one of the more radical ideas, I think, uh, from the research that came right out of really learning what these super boss leaders do. Uh, and, um, and I think it's not just radical, but it's incredibly powerful because if you, if you really think about that, uh, why, why do we need to think about change 
you know, the burning platform or the sense of urgency and all this, why is it, why does it have to be the case that your company or your business or your team have to be, you know, almost out of business have to be at the end, end of the end of your life before you change? Why is that a good idea? No, nobody, if we were to sit back and say, well, is the right time to change when we're almost dead or is the right time to change when we, uh, when we have the resources and the energy to, to change? It seems like a no brainer. Uh, but yet we follow a model. Uh, so many people follow a model that says, well, change is this impossible thing to do. And so we have to make people fear like, feel like the world is falling apart. Well, I think a much more powerful idea is to, has to have continuous, uh, focus on trying to get better, uh, trying to change, trying to adapt. I have to say a lot of, uh, a lot of the leading, um, tech companies follow this philosophy, whether they're in China or Silicon Valley or Stockholm or what have you. And, um, uh, it's, so it's about, it's about continually changing. It turns out the super boss playbook enables you to do that because, uh, it's about finding really great talent. It's about motivating them and energizing them. It's about having this, this vision that we've talked about that ties them together and unleashing their creativity as well. And all those things together create a, a culture, really a culture on your team or, uh, if you do this wide enough in your organization that is very, very focused on, change as a normal thing to do, not a, not, you don't need a, a task force and a special change team to change. It's just a normal thing to do because every day you're asking the question, what can we do better? How can we change this? How can we come up with a new creative solution to this problem? How can we start to ask new questions that uh, the, the, these things that are part of major change efforts are standard practice. Sewer boss leaders expect you to be thinking that way and reward you for thinking that way. So um, not only is it more powerful, uh, it's much more successful, and it's also much more fun. Uh, who who doesn't want to be in a in a on a team or an organization that's going for it? It's not just uh, kind of filling in the filling in the blanks and just waiting, you know, biding their time. Too many people work in organizations that are um, um, they're just too slow moving, that are not exciting, where there's all this bureaucratic malaise that exists, and it's reflected in employee engagement scores, which are not particularly good when you look at those surveys. Uh, employee engagement scores, I will say, for super boss leaders are off the charts. Um, this is a place where stuff happens. Uh, people want that, and it attracts people that have the energy to make things to make things happen and know that they're going to have that seat at the table, that opportunity to change and adapt. And so all of that, that together creates, I think, a pretty powerful formula for change. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, this over the course of a couple of interviews, including Nikki Gattenby, who was the link to your work, um, who, who her own company, the, the cultural surveyist had to create a new category of engagement for her mm -hmm. company, super engaged, hence the name of her book. Um, saying something very similar that it's, it's all about the, you know, it's about the talents, about you engage the talents and how you get, you get the best from people. You know, it's less about, um, this process or that process. It, it, it's really back to the human beings and how we get the best out of them. And it, it just seems to be coming through again and again. And it's funny how, how do we lose all of this when we created these sort of change men management paradigms? Well, you know, we, we, as companies get bigger and bigger, organizations get bigger and bigger, it makes sense to add processes because you can't depend on individuals to always do everything needs to get done. And now through digitalization, you could do this in a very efficient way. The problem is that while it makes sense to have, you know, processes to, to try to run as effectively as possible, um, they also tie your hands. It's just the irony of how the world works. Things that are good for you are also bad for you. And you could become so 
um, automated, uh, so automized in your in how you think that people are pushed out of the equation. And when that happens, you're just you know, unless unless your whole company is an algorithm, you're going to have some problems. Right. Are you aware of um, Purnell's Iron Law? Have you come across that from Jerry Purnell? Uh, you know, uh, I've heard various iron laws, but I'm not sure if I know this one. So I'll just, I'll just read it out. It just, it just seemed to make sense. In any bureaucracy, the people devoted to the benefit of the bureaucracy itself always get in control. And those dedicated to the goals the bureaucracy is supposed to accomplish have less and less influence and sometimes are limited, uh, eliminated entirely. So... Yeah, this idea the bureaucracy always takes over. And it seemed to me like I had this vision in my head of the super bosses kind of burning away the, mm-hmm. the kind of the ivy strangling, the ivy of bureaucracy um, strangling the tree. And, and they have the ability just to sort of put it back in its rightful place almost. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's not a very cheerful idea, this iron law, but uh, it, is, uh, it, it is accurate in a lot of companies. Uh, I think, uh, again, who, who wants, if you have a choice, why would you want to operate in that type of kind of make-believe world? I find it very, very interesting how people in their personal lives, everyday lives, they do whatever they do, but they go into work and they have to, they have to shift into a different, different place where they become completely dependent as opposed to independent, where, where their views are, are not important and they accept that. And, and in their personal lives, um, mostly they, they don't want that. They want to have an impact. Uh, super bosses um, really don't care for bureaucracy. It's true. They, uh, and hierarchy for that matter. They, they're just very uncomfortable with, with that. Of course, you know, the bigger the company gets, you're going to have systems in place. Otherwise, you have chaos. So there's some kind of trade-off and there's somewhere in the middle where you're going to end up. But uh, super boss leaders, because the, 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 the trend tends to be more and more bureaucracy taking over as opposed to uh, kind of this creativity and innovation that we've been talking about and that super bosses do, uh, they, fight, they fight aggressively against, uh, against bureaucracy. And, and you could do this as a leader in all sorts of jobs that you have, whether you're a CEO or middle manager as, as well, which is just finding one-on-one time with people on your team, uh, face-to-face, uh, and, and talking about whatever the, work is, whatever the work is about, just doing something like that on a regular basis. And when you're doing it, to, be, to realize that, that if you want to be an effective leader, you've you got to be a teacher as well. That's a core part of your, of your job. Uh, and uh, ironically, a lot of people tell me, well, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy doing my job. And so I tell them, you know, uh, to give, tell me what scenario exists where if your team doesn't get better, um, if your team gets better, you actually do worse. How, how is that possible? The stronger your team or the, the better you're going to be, the more successful you're going to be, the more money you're going to make, the faster you're going to move up. And it's, it's so obvious when you, when you put it in those stark terms, but yet you get so many people that, that, that are uncomfortable with that uh, and that prefer playing a bureaucracy game rather than an innovation game. Yeah, and when I think back to my, I mean, it's a long time since I worked in a last corp- corporation, but you know, I, my experience of my boss was, you know, maybe we'd meet once a year to mm-hmm. to, to review my scores on the evaluation survey. Mm-hmm. It was it was very transactional, you know, I hardly knew the guy. And, and yeah, I think that the picture you're painting here of these relationships between masters and apprentices is, well, it's, it's going back to an old model, but also just a very powerful one for, for people developing themselves. It's very, it's very true. 
you learn by working with other people. In fact, if you think about where somebody learns uh, on the job, where will you learn the most? It's almost always the potential is almost always from your boss working with her, working with him. And um, why wouldn't you want to kind of integrate that into how you operate? This master apprentice relationship that I found from the super boss leader is very, very powerful because it means that uh, um, you as the boss, as the leader, uh, need to teach, need to think about what you're teaching people on your team. But it also means that you're, um, you're being very hands-on in how you, how you work with them. Not quite a micromanager, to be sure, because a micromanager does somebody else's work for them, and that's not, that's not logical. But it also means that you don't just, you're not just hands-off, you're hands-on, you're hands and you look for opportunities to work, work with them at the same, uh, at the, uh, opportunities for them, for people on your team to have greater, uh, greater chance for growth. You look for all of those things and, um, and you get a di- very different kind of relationship with, uh, with people on your team. And it's not the once a year thing that you were, you were talking about. It's much more, uh, it's much more regular. And, uh, and the payoff is, as I said, you know, you're going to do better on your team because your, your team members are stronger and they themselves are going to be able to advance their own, their own career. So it's a classic win-win. Right. Um, so that, and that, and that sounds something really practical, like that, but the people listening to this can take away, okay, you know, let's, let's start integrating that idea. You know, if I'm going to become more of a super boss, it's, it's developing these apprentice relationships with people. Uh, you know, and I know people can go by the book, but is, is there like one or two other things that you recommend people on a really practical level to start to implement some of these ideas? Well, there are, there are lot, lots of things, but a, a couple that, uh, that might come to mind. Um, so this is all for a manager that has a team uh, who wants to help that team get better. Uh, spend some time one-on-one with each member of your team to try to understand, well, what makes them tick? Uh, how do they get motivated? Not everyone gets motivated the same way. Uh, and how you work with uh, one person on your team does not have to be identical to how you work with somebody else on your team. Your goal, when you think about it, is accomplishing the fundamental uh, goals of your team, whatever they happen to be, whatever those numbers are that you have to hit at the same time. Well, let's just stop with that. That's, that's your fundamental goal. How do you get that? Well, you get that by trying to help each person, in your team maximize their capabilities. And you do, and, and that only happens when you get to know who they are and interact with them as, as individuals. I, so I, I even advocate coming out with a set of ground rules for each member of your team, but how you're going to work together, what the expectations are. And those ground rules could be as, as simple as how often you're going to talk, whether there's a preference to texting, especially true for young people, or using Slack, uh, which is maybe more meaningful in a company, um, or email or face-to-face or uh, conference calling or what, what have you. It, it, uh, it also could refer to um, um, how often you're going to check in with people on your team. Some people, they really thrive on kind of the... the um, um, the, the one, the one-on-one time to help, help them along. Other people want to be left alone and come back, you know, a month later, uh, with, uh, with, uh, you know, whatever the assignment is and coming up with what, what makes sense for, for you in that respect. So in almost any part of how you manage people on a day-to-day basis, you can think about identifying, creating those ground rules with each person on your team. And they're going to just be, first of all, no one's ever done that for them, almost certainly. So right away, you're signaling and you actually care about them. And it turns out caring for somebody uh, is one of the greatest things you can possibly do if you want them to do more for you. So it's, it's kind of, kind of funny about, about that. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits from doing just that one idea. Right. Right. 
uh, and of course, as you say, you know, for people who want to pick up more of the of the suggestions that you make, they they can they can get the book. Um, a question that, uh, and I know this is maybe a bit of a a, a gear shift here, but um, the show is called Being Human. So, in the context of your um, uh, you know, your research, as you say, you, you it's an, an an immense research project uh, you, for for pulling this book together. Um. What does what does being human mean to you? Well, that's a pretty broad question, right there, Richard. But I could t- I could try to tackle it. Um, well, being being human um, m- means recognizing we have a certain number of years um, um, on Earth, and when those are done, what will we have accomplished? Uh, what will our legacy be? Business. People in management, one of those legacies could be how they, what, what the people, what will the people who, who reported to you over the years, what are they going to say about you when, when you retire? Um, what, what, what impact did you have on them? And uh, if I, uh, when I think about, uh, you know, people that I've talked to about super bosses and my own teaching and other work that I've done, uh, one of the most powerful things, especially when you see people near retirement, they, they talk about it a lot. They're thinking about their impact. What? difference that they make. And the difference you, you make is so often on these one-on-one relationships with people. Um, we can call them super boss-like relationships, but they might even be broader than that. These one-on-one relationships where you actually you care about somebody else or you help somebody else get better, you mentor them, uh, or even you push them really hard in the glorious bastard me- uh, um, approach. doesn't really matter whatever the style is, what, uh, but uh, what they all have in common is this um, this quest to make a difference, uh, to have an impact. And that impact is so often assessed in people's brains by how and what other people will say about them. And uh, when, I, when I talk about super bosses to big groups and I describe some of the things super bosses did, uh, I, I say, and I could see it um, in their eyes, really, uh, that they're thinking about the leaders, uh, the super boss leaders that they've had in their careers. Cause you never forget, you never forget a super boss. You always remember the impact of somebody uh, that somebody had on you. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. Uh, and so, you know, in the context of work and career and accomplishment, being, uh, being human is about having an impact on other people. Hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah. That- that 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 certainly recognize that resonates for me, and I can see. Uh, I suppose that as one ages, that becomes more and more of a of a theme, right? I mean, yeah, well, I think I think it does because I've seen it from a lot of people who are um, close to retirement, where that becomes really top of mind. But imagine starting your career or start or, or at any stage, you know, where, wherever you happen to be, paying a little bit of attention to that uh, and not being so worried about. You know, we, we create all this stress uh, on ourselves. There's enough stress that uh, exists for real. We shouldn't have to create even more stress. And uh, helping somebody else uh, fulfill their potential is one of the greatest things anyone could possibly do. And they'll never forget you for it. So, um, uh, and I think we also know that when you do things for other people, the greatest beneficiary is almost always yourself because uh, of how it makes you feel. So, uh, again, it's it's such a logical thing. <laughs> uh it's kind of a, it's kind of remarkable that more people are not behaving this way on a day-to-day basis. Right. It, it is remarkable. And it, it's, 
and it's back to what you said earlier when when you ask people this question oh well i'm too busy right i'm too busy to to, to invest mm-hmm. the thought and the time into thinking about how i might have an impact on a, on another and yet it's it's the thing that could give us the greatest reward in our life and it could be the most rewarding thing for the organizations we work in it's it, it's it's somehow we've 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 all become victims of this busyness uh culture yeah yeah we we are and everything's digital we're always available and all these things keep on going i think uh at the end of uh, at the end of every day it would be good for people one idea is to ask yourself you know uh what did i do for someone else today and you might not always be able to answer that in the affirmative every single day i understand that but if you're never coming up with an answer, then maybe you're on the other side of the ledger. And what did you do for someone else? It could be a customer, it could be a client, it could be, it could be an employee or team members we're talking about, it could be someone in your family, it could be a stranger, uh, could be, it could be all of those. Uh, when you ask yourself a question like that, you, and you force yourself, cause it's so easy to say, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Two days later, you're no longer asking yourself. So you got to put in your diary to, to, to do that. And, uh, I think it's a, simple but practical way to start living living a life a little bit more like this yeah and what i love about the way that you've written the book is that that can be in your style you know the the way in which you impact another can be very different depending on your 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 style Mm -hmm. and and that's okay it's it's not like there's there's one uh you know one one mode that's better than any of the others in, in in this endeavor yeah that's right. People fall into that trap a lot. I think believing you got to do this and this and this, and there are a lot of ways to to do it. I think the fundamental underlying principles you want to think about what those are, how to be effective, and that's what we've talked about a lot, uh, you know, on, on this um, on this chat. But there are different ways to accomplish that, and you shouldn't shouldn't. I don't think people should kind of tie themselves up and not saying that when I'm not doing the method is not exactly the way I read it here. Well, you gotta, you gotta be true to yourself and your own personality. Brilliant. Yeah. That's a fantastic message. Okay. Well, Sydney, thank you so much for your time. And to remind others who want to learn more of your work, it's the, it's the Sidcast, uh, S-Y-D space cast on iTunes. Uh, actually no space, <laughs> no space, no Sidcast, space. all one word. All one word. Sorry. That's right. Uh, and, um, the book, I can highly recommend it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very compelling read. The, the quality of the research just kind of shines through on every page. It's like there isn't a page in this book without an important story. It, it really is, you know, testament to it. Fantastically well-written book. Um, so Superbosses, you can find that on Amazon. And now there's a Superboss playbook, right? That's also available. Uh, anywhere else people sh- should look to find more of your work? Uh, well, you could always find, uh, find my website that has all sorts of information, um, a lot of articles, a lot of things that I've been doing. And that's easy enough just by Googling my, my name. It t- typically comes up at the top. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Um, Twitter handles at Sid Finkelstein. Again, it's SYD. Uh, but, uh, the best place to see my latest thinking uh, are these conversations, uh, in, uh, in uh, the Sidcast. Um, and that, uh, that would be, uh, that'd be one of the best ways for people to kind of check in on what, what I'm up to. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, enjoy the, the rest of your day. My pleasure. Thank you. The being human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans, human focused coaching and leadership programs. Head to firsthuman.com.